We are studying the book of Acts, marching our way through. We're going to move at a faster clip here in the next month or so. We uh, pause for a moment in Acts chapter 2 because so many things happen in Acts chapter 2 with the beginning of the church, uh, the formation of the first Christian community, and we see a lot taking place there. But here we see in Acts chapter 4 this story of the mission of God which has been sent out through Christ and through His church that we as His people should be witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus to the world, in our own world, and as we progress out from that. This mission took off like a rocket ship. It um, had great success in Jerusalem. Some 3,000 souls were added to the church. And immediately after that, Peter and John began to continue to spread as witnesses throughout uh, their world. And as they were going to the temple, they healed a man who was lame for 40 years. And now we've come to the place in chapter 4 where Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4 are really one major event that takes place together. This mission of Jesus being enacted through the church is hitting its first bump in the road. It's having its first major problem. And you see here, both the civic and the religious leaders of the day do not like what these uh, rough-necked, sort of outcast ignorant, uneducated people are doing, what they're teaching, what they're preaching. They are disrupting life as we know it. Uh, In the reading that Rob gave for us, he lists several people that are involved in the frustration that uh, they have with the apostles who are now preaching the resurrection of the dead. They have the Sadducees who don't like the beliefs of this newfound faith because they don't believe in the resurrection. We see the chief of the temple who Uh, His daily business is running and governing the temple, and he doesn't want any disruptions with his business. And so this newfound Christianity is disrupting the temple. We see the priests are upset about this. Their day-to-day business and offering sacrifices is being challenged. And then later we see even the the very high priest, Annas and Caiaphas, who were involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. There are many people that are not wanting their lives to be disrupted by this mission that these apostles are now on. And they want it to stop. And so, they arrest Peter and John. And they bring Peter and John in. And you notice in verse 2 uh, why they arrested them. Luke gives us some insight. Uh, yours may not say it this way. The ESV reads verse 2, the very first two words is this. That they were greatly annoyed. These people were annoyed that they were teaching in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, that there will be a new heaven and a new earth coming because of what Jesus has purchased in the resurrection from the dead. And so they are greatly annoyed by this disruption. But what's unique is you come down to verse 7 where they're, you know, they're held that night in prison, brought out the next morning in front of the rulers, the leaders of that town, the, basically the Sanhedrin, and they're not charged with preaching the resurrection of the dead. That's not what they're charged with. They're annoyed that they're preaching the resurrection of the dead, but they're not actually even really charged. They're just asked an open-ended question, possibly in hopes that they would implicate themselves in some crime so that they then could be charged. Maybe, for instance, that they healed on the Sabbath or they they, um, ate some unclean thing. They were hoping to find something in them that was charge-worthy, but they were just asking them, how in the world is this man now made well what power are you using what name are you calling down from heaven upon to make this man well how are you doing it and they already know but they ask him and so peter now 
with John is facing incredible amounts of pressure to conform his will to the cultural leaders of his day who are annoyed with the message. Peter and John are being pressed by the leaders of the society in which they live to take their message and not get rid of it. They, they don't really care if they preach about Jesus. What they don't want is disruption in their culture and disruption in their religion. So you can talk about the things you want to talk about. You can speak about Jesus. You can talk of him as a teacher and a prophet, even a miracle worker if you want. But don't disrupt our civic life and don't disrupt our religious life. And so now Peter is facing pressure because they're saying to him, uh, you know, how are you doing this? And then they send Peter and John out and they bring him back in and they say, listen, stop preaching this way about Jesus. Don't do it. And so Peter and John are in this tough position. Do you bend the message of Jesus to conform to the will of your cultural leaders who might be annoyed or frustrated, most likely threatened by the gospel? And the message that threatened them so much was not that Jesus was a teacher, but what threatened them mostly, and this is what Peter gets to, is that they are preaching Jesus as the exclusive way to salvation. You see, I don't think these cultural leaders would have had much problem with Peter, John, and the rest of the apostles if they didn't come so boldly saying that Jesus, in his name, by his power, because of his life, death, and burial resurrection, you can now be saved. And in no other name can you be saved. In Jesus, they were preaching the resurrection of the dead. In Jesus, they were preaching salvation. And they were excluding all other ways to the Father. You see, it's the exclusivity of Christianity that is oftentimes seen as its weakness. Even Christian leaders today in, in all generations have seen the exclusive message of Christianity as sort of a, a deterrent to the message or a weakness in our society. We, what we oftentimes want to do with our message is say, well, listen, there's a lot of ways to get to heaven. Jesus is a really good way. You should think about Jesus. He's one of the best ways, but we just don't want to really press far enough to say he's the exclusive way. But as, as we walk through this morning, what exclusivity really is, I think you'll find that the exclusive message of the gospel is not its weakness, but its strength. It's not its weakness. It's the core strength of Christianity. And if your Christianity doesn't have an exclusivity to it, it has no strength. So I wanted to help you. I want to help you think through the exclusive claim of Christianity from Acts chapter 4, verse 12, by considering just three simple things. One, the nature of exclusivity in general. I want to talk a little bit about what exclusivity really is. Number two, we're going to talk about the substance of Christian exclusivity. And then finally, how you'll find some confidence in it. Let's start with the nature of it. Uh, quick disclaimer that, that we'll be thinking a little philosophically here. So just hang with me as we walk through it. But as you think about this, right now in our culture, we live in a very what is called a pluralistic society. Uh, you could probably understand what I mean by that by just listening to the word plural, meaning more than one. Pluralistic societies um, operate this way. Um, and, and they've existed before. We're not the first society to be pluralistic. Greece was a very pluralistic society um, in which Paul came into in Acts chapter 17 and preached the gospel. But what I mean when I say pluralistic society is this. That people teach and preach that there are multiple different ways 
that you can make your way up to what you want to call salvation or nirvana or life or heaven or whatever you want to call making it to the place where you're good or you're happy. Multiple ways to God, people might say it. And what pluralistic societies preach is this. Everyone should find their own path to their own joy. Does that sound pretty familiar to you in our culture today? Yay or nay? Everyone, just listen. You do your thing, I'll do my thing, but don't tell me my thing should be your thing. And if you tell me my thing should be your thing, then you're trampling on me, and therefore that's taboo. We cannot do that in our society. That's the culture in which we live today. That's called pluralism. And on the surface, here's the challenge. Doesn't pluralism sound really inclusive? You do you, I'll do me, right? You think what you want to think, I'll think what I want to think. You find your truth, I'll find my truth. You do your way to God, I'll do my way to God. And it sounds incredibly inclusive. It also sounds very humble. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. I'm not saying mine's right, and I'm not saying yours is wrong. You just do yours and I'll do mine. And it sounds very humble. It sounds very liberating, doesn't it? Whew, it kind of feels good. I don't have to conform my will to anybody. And I don't have to actually take what I believe and press that up against somebody else's beliefs to see if there's truth in either of them. I can just actually withdraw into my own little secluded area and not be challenged in any of my beliefs. It sounds kind of liberating. And unfortunately, what it's being sold as is not just inclusive, humble, and liberating. It's being sold as the ultimate good. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. In theory, it sounds like the really simple answer to peace, to prosperity, to joy, to get rid of division and conflict. If we would just all let everybody do whatever they want to do and think whatever they want to think, life will be just fine. Let everyone think what everyone wants to think and do what everyone wants to do and don't bother anyone. But what if I think that I sh what I should do because my worldview tells me this is how I'll find happiness in life is to figure out a way to remove a particular race from our culture. What if that's what I think? What if that's what I believe? That the best way for me to make a particular place in which I live the best kind of place it should be is that I should remove from my place a race of people in, my, in the world. This has happened before in our world, right? Somebody has thought this before and enacted a plan for this to happen. In our, it, within the last hundred years, this has happened. Now what happens when I think that? And because of my belief, I begin to act that out, that a certain race is not good for the world and I should get rid of that race because the world will be better. What if I be begin to believe that? How is inclusivity now working for us? You see, the person who holds an inclusive view would quickly, quickly want to exclude my view. Am I right? Please say yes. <laughs> we want to exclude those kind of worldviews. Okay, you guys are making me a little nervous there. Like, which one are you talking about? <laughs> okay, good. We're all together, right? God made all the races. Revelation says there, there's going to be a tree of life and the leaves are going to be for the healing of the nations, plural in heaven, nations, that we're going to love enjoying cultural differences in heaven. We're going to love differences amongst each other. It's going to be great. And we should be working for that now. And if I have the belief that one of those should be gotten rid of, 
and you're an inclusive person, and all of a sudden you hear that I think a certain race should be gotten rid of, and I begin to enact that belief, you all of a sudden become exclusive. Get rid of that thought, right? Here's my point. The moment anybody claims anything is good, true, or right, by nature it's exclusive. I want to make sure you get that. If you say anything is good, right, or true, by nature you are saying there are some things that are not good, some things that are not right, and some things that are not true. Do you see it's exclusive? Everyone's exclusive in some way, shape, or form. Truth immediately demands that there are some things that are not true, some things that are false. And here's the deal. Christianity is not the only worldview or religion that is exclusive. Hinduism, you've heard of Hinduism? It's probably seen in our world as the most tolerant religion. Holds two uncompromising doctrines that you must hold if you're going to be a Hindu. One is the doctrine of karma, which, please Christians, stop believing in karma, okay? It's not real. Karma is not real, but that's, that's a Hindu belief. Number two, the doctrine of reincarnation. Those are the two things that they hold on to if you're going to be a Hindu. So if you don't believe in those, they would exclude you from being a Hindu. Does that make sense? In fact, that's where Buddhism came from. That's where it came from. They didn't believe that you should hold to those two doctrines. And so it was born out of the rejection of those two dogmatic claims, karma and reincarnation. So Buddhism came. It's a, it's a non-theistic religion. There is no God. Okay? Islam has an exclusive claim to God themselves. In fact, any good Muslim would never tell you, never tell you, that all religions are the same or all religions are true. No, they never would. Atheism, yes, I include atheism in religion. Atheism is not neutral on religion. It's not neutral. Atheism has a belief that the world should be eradicated from the influence of religion, so they seek to exclude religion. Do you see my point? Hindu, Buddhism, Islam, atheism, and Christianity. Every worldview is exclusive. The point is this. What we have to do is we realize that everything is exclusive. So you, you get some mental notes on that because your friends that you work with, the people that you live around, for sake of just trying to get along and get along with each other, are going to say things that we should all just be inclusive. And what you got to point out is that anytime you say something is true, right, or good, you've immediately become exclusive. And that's not always bad. What we have to do is not fear being exclusive. What we have to fear, what we have to do is not fear being exclusive, but examine truth claims, examine goodness claims, and examine claims that are rightful. So when somebody says this is good, true, and right, like my example before that I think, not truthfully, but I think that maybe let's say a race should be eradicated, you should examine that claim and say, is it true or not true? Is it good or not good? And if it's not good, it should be excluded. So that brings us to the second point, the substance of Christian exclusivity. What is the substance of of what makes Christianity exclusive? What Peter said in verse 8, starting in verse 8, is this. When he's put on trial and he says, okay, you tell me, how did you do this? How did this happen? Peter says in verse 8, I want you to listen to the words that Peter says and see if you can figure out what Peter thinks makes Christianity exclusive. I'm going to read 8 through 12. And I want to see if you can uh, come together with what makes Christianity exclusive. Verse 8. 
Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there's salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What do you think makes Christianity exclusive? Do we have a unique set of teachings that no one's ever heard of? In fact, there's, you know, we share some teachings with other religions about how to treat people. You know, what's interesting is this is the one place where Christianity differs from all the list of religions that I gave you before. Where it differs from all other worldviews. The substance of Peter's exclusive claim about Christianity is about the teacher, not the teachings. It's about the man, Jesus Christ, the founder of the faith. Not just the set of doctrines that he presented to us. Every other worldview Every other world religion will present to you a set of teachings that says if you would hear these teachings, believe these teachings and follow these teachings. And if everyone would understand these particular teachings, these instructions, that's what makes this religion, this worldview, the right one. Christianity says it's the man, Jesus Christ, that we adhere ourselves to. Now, I'm not getting rid of teachings. Jesus is full of teachings, full of doctrines. But what makes Christianity exclusive is that we have a faith, not just in a particular set of teachings, but in a teacher who's been our savior. I claim the exclusivity of Christianity as the way to God, not because I think all of Jesus' teachings are just the very best, which I do, but in fact, there are many teachings of Jesus that rub my human nature wrong sometimes. He asks me to, for example, pray for my enemies. I don't always like to do that. He asks me to be generous with my money. Sometimes I want to hold on to my money. He asks me to do things that are not natural for me that I don't always want to do. So I didn't look at the teachings of Jesus and say, hey, praying for your enemies and being generous with your money is just the easiest thing in the world. We should just do that. What you have to come to first and foremost is who is Jesus? Who is he? He came to earth and said, I'm God. He lived a sinless life. He was hung on a Roman cross, even though he was found guiltless. He went into a tomb that was sealed by a stone, guarded by two military fighters. And on a Sunday morning, a couple thousand years ago, that stone moved and an angel sat on top of it. And Jesus Christ was not there. This faith is built on that man who was God. And here's the deal. When you look into the evidence of who Jesus is and who Jesus was and why that matters, when you look into Jesus, who he is, this whole thing's built on him. And the moment you realize, I, yeah, I think he was God. And I know he lived and he was sinless. And I believe that he died for my sins, the meaning of that. And I don't think he's dead anymore. I think he came back from the grave. And there is ample evidence that tells me this man came back from the grave. All of a sudden, those teachings that Jesus gave me, which is pray for your enemy, be generous with your money, 
all of a sudden it doesn't matter if I like it or not. Who cares if my flesh likes that or not? Because that man is God. And I submit to him. Do you see that? There's a difference. What most people want you to do is put, on, put in front of you on a table Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism. They, they want you to put on the table and just evaluate which one you like the best. Well, who's God if all we're doing is evaluating which one we like the best? Who's God? We are. And that will never, ever lead to unity amongst people, to peace on earth, to joy. It won't do it. We're terrible at being God. We're horrible at telling the world how it should be run. In fact, we can't even run our own lives when we tell ourselves the truth. You see, the exclusivity of Christianity is not based upon the fact that it has invented some unique teachings that no one has ever thought of or heard of. What makes Christianity exclusive is that Jesus Christ is God. And when you see him as God, then all of a sudden you take his teachings and say, whether I like him or not, I'll obey. Okay. Let's talk about how we have confidence then, and we'll finish. Look down at verse 20. When Peter was faced, Peter and John were faced with this kind of pressure and threats to stop teaching Jesus. Peter and John kind of had their hands tied in that moment. They came back in after they, uh, Peter and John were sent out so that the St. Hedrick could confer. Okay, listen, um, we don't want them to do this, but the guy that they healed is standing right here and he's not lame anymore. So what are we going to do? They said, okay, here's what we got. We can't charge him with anything. We can't deny it because he's walking around and people saw it. Let's just tell these guys. Let's threaten them. Don't you dare say another word about Jesus. And so they bring him back in and they, you know, from their powerful position, threaten these guys saying, don't you say a word about Jesus. And now Peter and John have their hands tied. But their hands are not tied by that court. Their hands are tied by Christ in a very good way. Look in verse 20. Um, we can read verse 19 as well. That would help you. Peter and John answered them when they were threatened not to speak about Jesus. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you go ahead and judge. You, you decide what you think about whether it's right to listen to you or not. But here's what we know in verse 20. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You see, here's the question. I think all of us in here, in the safe confines of our church fellowship, can give hearty amens, smiles and head nods to the preacher that's telling you that Christianity is exclusive and Jesus Christ is the means by that exclusivity and he is the way to God. He is the way, the truth, the life. I think we all can agree to that. But how are you going to have confidence when you leave this place and you go to your workplace and you might be maybe one of the more um, uh, committed Christians in your workplace, maybe in your neighborhood, where it's maybe 20 or 30% of people are active and going to church right now that would buy into this. Many of the people in our culture are pressured to be pluralistic. Where are you going to find confidence to do this? Here's where Peter and John have their confidence. They said, listen, even if you don't like it, I'm sorry. All we know, that all, the only thing we can do is tell you what we have seen and what we have heard. You will not have confidence in the exclusivity of Christ, especially in the face of our hostile culture, if you have not seen and you have not heard who Jesus is. Both learned who Jesus is and lived what Jesus can do. Both 
educated on who Jesus is and what we're supposed to do, but also experienced the effect of Jesus, his life-changing effect on your life. To know, once you do this, once you know that Jesus, once you try uh, to, to test his exclusivity, to come to him, to understand who he is and what it means to bow to him as Lord and what it means to have him deliver you from your pursuit of sin, what it means in all that. When you understand that, when you experience that, and you realize that you have been trying to find life outside of him for so long and that his exclusivity is actually good for you, then you begin to learn that Jesus did not say, I come to teach you the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am your life. G.K. Chesterton said it this way. He said, the problem with Christianity is not that it has been tried and left found wanting. Meaning like you want more from it. The problem with Christianity is that it's been found difficult and left untried. You see, surface level interaction with Christianity where you just think about the teachings. For instance, in our culture, what do people mostly criticize about Christianity? It's teacher or teachings? It's teachings, right? It's teachings. They argue about the teachings, but press them to look at the teacher. And I press you to look at the teacher. Because when you know who he is, then all of a sudden you'll be willing to put yourself under his teachings. Think about when Philip finally saw who Jesus was in John chapter 1, when John said, Behold the Lamb of God, and Philip said, This is it, this is the one. He goes and finds Nathanael, and he says, We found the Messiah. It's Jesus from Nazareth. And Nathanael says, Can anything good come from Nazareth? And what did Philip say? Come and see. Remember the woman at the well? when she was told of her sin and she was brought about face to face with the Lord, when he said, listen, God is seeking worshipers who will worship in spirit and truth. Your lying won't get you to God, even if you think you have the right mountain. That's what he was saying to her. And, he, and she runs off into the city and she tells those people in the city, come and see a man who told me all that I've ever done. Remember the blind man in John chapter 9, representative of the fact that we're all blind. And the trouble with not physical but spiritual blindness is that you're blind to your blindness. You don't know that you're blind. And that blind man, when he was healed of his sight, came and saw Jesus. When Jesus, or Jesus came and found him after he was kicked out of the synagogue, he was outcast. Jesus came and found him, and he told him. He said, "You know, he said, I know he's coming." He says, "I who am speaking to you am the one. I'm the Messiah." And in that moment, when that blind man could finally see, not just physically but spiritually, what's the one thing he did? He didn't say, well, let me see uh, your book of teachings on uh, what's your sexual ethic and how should I handle social justice? <laughs> what did he do? He just fell down and he worshipped him. You see, I think most of us stay at an arm's length di distance from Jesus. And what we want to do is critique and consult with him on doctrines. And not come near to him and have an experience where we understand that he is God. And when he is God to you. He's not just your consultant. He's the Lord. And you fall down and you'll worship him. And so the offer always is, whether it's this morning now or always, is let me or somebody here introduce you to Jesus. When you know him, you'll understand that his exclusive claim on joy, his exclusive claim on peace, his exclusive claim on life, his exclusive claim to get to God was born out of his exclusive love for you 
and it was bought for you at an exclusive price of his life. You understand that. And when you begin to see Jesus in all of his glory, as John told us to, that, he is, that we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. And as Paul would later say, that the more we see with unveiled eyes who Jesus is, we will be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. The more you see Jesus, the more you will buy into the fact that he is the only way to life, joy, and peace. But you won't get it by just standing at a distance. You've got to come near to him and see who he is. So if that's you this morning, let's stand and sing. You can come. Jesus is Lord, my